But we start today with that Supreme Court of Canada ruling saying the court will not hear a new appeal from B.C. First Nations who do not want the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion to go ahead. The court earlier today dismissed the appeal from several First Nations. Now, not everybody took this as a bad thing. Speaking at an event on highway improvements in Alberta earlier today, Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney reacted to the news saying this was a good decision. I do want to celebrate a very important decision this morning by the Supreme Court of Canada, which upheld the unanimous decision of the Federal Court of Appeal refusing to hear an appeal for a further delay on the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. This is yet another critical victory for pipelines. That was Alberta Premier Jason Kenney speaking earlier today. However, many of the groups who were behind this appeal, behind the challenge of the pipeline expansion, say they are going to be looking at other options now to continue opposing this project. Let's bring in Chief Leah George Wilson, a chief with the Tsleil-Waututh Nation, to talk a little bit more about this. Thank you so much for being here. I do want to celebrate. Thank you for having me, Joe. Uh, what is your reaction to uh, the Supreme Court of Canada ruling that it will not hear this appeal or hear a new appeal? We're extremely disappointed. However, we are not surprised. We don't get decisions in these cases. It's it's uh, just uh, the ruling that, that goes one way or the other. Um, does that make it more difficult not knowing the decisions or why it was the Supreme Court of Canada made this decision? It is a little worrisome because, you know, this case is, about more than a risky pipeline and tanker project, it actually represents a major setback for reconciliation because it reduces consultation to a purely procedural requirement. And that will be a serious barrier to reconciliation. And we're in this era of reconciliation and the Canadian Constitution requires the recognition of Indigenous rights. And we have... Canada moving to uphold the UN Declaration on the Rights of of Indigenous People, and we have the Truth and Reconciliation calls to action. So the government's conduct in the Coldwater case mark a departure from where we need to be. And and looking back at how this has gone through the courts, uh, we're going back to the Trans Mountain Project first getting approval in 2016, uh, stopped at the Federal Court of Appeal level. Uh, where we stand today, what are the main concerns? Are the, are the concerns that were still first raised and, and taken to court, are those still the concerns that you and the others involved in this case have? Yes, our specific concerns that we've been raising since 2014 are that oil spills are inevitable, they cannot be cleaned up. We don't know how diluted bitumen will act or in salt or fresh water. And a major oil spill would have devastating impacts on Burrard Inlet and the Fraser River estuary. The project poses devastating impacts to killer whales and killer whales are protected by the Species at Risk Act, and we have a deep cultural and spiritual connection with them. And the last thing is that the project is the project relies on outdated economic information. All of those remain unaddressed. So what do you say when you hear the Prime Minister repeat over and over that this project is the best way for the federal government to find this compromise or to find this common ground between the economy and the environment? I think um, he's not saying the whole 
the whole truth. We're not looking at the whole picture. We haven't we haven't really talked about how the information that they're basing on on this on the economic side is outdated. They're not talking about how we haven't even done the studies that can show how diluted bitumen will act in salt or fresh water. And we're really we were really troubled to learn that Canada suppressed and then altered scientific peer reviews of our expert reports on diluted bitumen. And they withheld that important information until after the close of consultation. Is there- so how is that meaningful? Well, there's certainly a lot of questions about kind of the decision-making process. Is there anything that could be done, though, and the concerns that you just raised? Would there be any way, do you think, that that you or the other groups that are opposed to this pipeline would find a way, would be okay with it? I think that whenever Canada has come to the table, they have not been open to hear anything that the First Nations are saying except for what it is that the federal government wants to hear. We want to protect the environment. How is that a bad thing? We want our people to have clean drinking water. How is that a bad thing? Or how is that wrong? And and why can't they come to the table with open, with that kind of openness to work collaboratively on pathways forward? And when you talk about that as well, when we're talking about the the issue, the concerns about a a possible oil spill and also then issues around killer whales and and putting this product in tankers onto the ocean, is one of those more more alarming or one of those more of a concern than the other? In fact, because it is two different things, if we're talking about one, the pipeline, and then what happens to the product once it leaves the pipeline. Um, For us, because the terminus is right in our front yard, the um, tanker traffic and the potential or the inevitability of an oil spill is the most pressing in our minds. And the fact that, you know, we don't, we don't, or what we do know about cleaning up oil spills is that you can't. What do you say to some of uh, the other groups that are in favor of this and that's, uh, that say that they've signed on in support of this, that it's a way to bring some kind of economic prosperity, to bring uh, ec- revenues uh, to, to the region? Because there is that bit of a disconnect in that not everybody is opposed to this. I think that people that have the impact and benefit agreements likely felt pressure to sign those agreements. And people, most of our communities are are poor and don't have a lot of economic development opportunities in their territories and don't have very many options. I mean, in Vancouver, we're right next to the big city, so it's different for different for us. But it's not. I mean, it's more difficult for some First Nations that don't have those kinds of economic development options. Slautith would never judge anybody for having having some kind of impact and benefit agreement. Slautith understands that people need to do what's best for their own communities.
And when you say that you think they likely felt pressured, because do you think because of, of the economic situation? Because it would seem, I, I would like to think that, that people who have signed on to those agreements did so knowing knowing what was in the agreement and, and did so because they, they looked at it and, and decided that it might be the best thing for them. Well, I have no doubt that they looked at it and decided it was the best thing for them. But... I don't, that doesn't necessarily mean that they agree with whatever the proponent thinks is the best thing for them. It could mean that this was, uh, how, do you, how can I say this was uh, the best, in their view, opportunity or the only opportunity that they had to make sure that their own communities could have some kind of benefit. What do you anticipate happening now? This is the highest court in Canada that has said it will not hear this new appeal. Are there any other avenues that those who are opposed to Trans Mountain are able to take now? Uh, yes, we believe so. And we need to have that discussion as a Slavic Nation Council. And then we also need to talk with our people because that's where the direction comes from, it comes from our community and our members. Chief Leah George Wilson, we will leave it there for today. We're out of time, but I really do appreciate you talking with us about this. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Well, as you know, we now have a better idea on how visitation will look like for long-term care facilities. The province announcing earlier this week that visitors will be allowed one single designated visitor. There will be safety protocols in place, but after months of people not being able to see their loved ones, there will be opportunity for that. A lot of information was released during that news conference to announce the changes. So we wanted to check in and see how things are going at this point. And Mike Klassen joins us once again, acting CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Mike, thanks so much for coming back on the show. It's my pleasure, Jill. Uh, there were a lot of questions about the designated visitor, how long the visits would be, what kind of uh, safety equipment would be used. Have you been able to kind of work through those questions or give people a better idea of what this is going to look like? Uh, well, of course, we just got the uh, announcement and, and uh, released back on Tuesday afternoon. And uh, yesterday was a, uh, a day off, hopefully, for a few folks, not necessarily everybody at the care homes. Uh, so we are still trying to piece together what this looks like. But um, for sure, um, the care providers are gearing up. Some were going to have to uh, figure out the scheduling part of it, um, the staffing part of it of course, and all the measures that are going to be needed to, to ensure that uh, the places are, are safe for, uh, for families, uh, residents, and staff. So we'll uh, let them uh, kind of guide this process. And, of course, um, you know, the government plays a, an important part in this. A part in this. They've uh, announced a, a number of uh, measures, including some significant funding for additional hiring of staff, uh, which is welcome news. It was precisely what we asked for a few weeks ago uh, when we sent our letter to Dr. Henry and, and to the government. Will the visits, though, have to wait when you talk about that funding and the hiring of extra staff? Does that need to be in place before the visits can start? We have um, really seen that the family members are going to play an, an incredibly important part in, in this whole endeavor because um, it, they have to be uh, real partners in the sense that um, we've all had to sacrifice, I think, by have keeping sort of family separated for all these last few months as we kind of navigate our way through um, the risks associated with COVID-19. Now we're going to have to let um, the care homes um, prepare for visits. And I think 
Um, the, the, the rule of having a single uh, designated family member is a way for us to, um, to kind of slowly uh, adapt. Um, if we talked about, um, for example, having a designated space within a, in a care home, if somebody comes in uh, to meet with their family member, we want to make sure that as many people as possible are able to, to get through and meet with their loved ones. So they will probably be on shorter shifts, maybe 20 minutes or half an hour. Um, and uh, there are only certain times of the day. So if you can imagine, there are meals obviously being served. Uh, there are shift changes for staff. You want to make sure that you're not uh, conflicting with those. So there's probably about a, a, about four or five times during the day, right into the evening, where um, visits will be able to be scheduled. And as each person or every family member that goes through, there'll have to be a cleaning protocol as well to make sure that you know, that the place is wiped down and any touch surfaces that are touched are all disinfected. So it's a, it's a bit of a laborious process. But again, once we get that those first visits happening, we'll see how it works and we'll try and make sure that um, as things move forward, that more people have those opportunities and perhaps even longer stays will be possible. Right. I would imagine, though, there are so many people that are anxious to start those visits. Uh, I was even getting email on Tuesday from people saying that they were in a position where they'd actually, the the care facility had found a way to work around and to allow visits. Uh, When do you anticipate, though, and I I appreciate that the announcement was only made on Tuesday, when do you you think, though, we might see these visits in actually happening? So there are obviously hundreds of care homes in, in the province, and so we want to uh, make sure that each one of them are able to do this in a way that they think is going to be safe and uh, not put uh, staff or family members at risk. Um, so I think it's going to be really a process that we would like to be, uh, I think that the care providers themselves are going to want to drive. There are going to be some that are uh, very ready for this. They might be a little smaller, uh, um, you know, well-organized and, and ready to do this uh, and to have the, uh, the people come into the care homes. Others, there might be a, a bit more work to do. And, of course, uh, if you have a lot of family members that would like to get in, it's almost like the early days when we opened up uh, the ability to have haircuts. You're going to have to probably get your appointment, and uh, hopefully uh, we can get get those things rolling as soon as possible. But I'm not going to, other than sort of um, saying that we expect that it would probably be about a minimum 10 days before somebody is um, has all the um, processes in place. Uh, it may be sooner for some, and it may take longer for others. Uh, and do you anticipate that there will be, and I think you kind of touched on this, because already uh, some people are saying, well, before this, I would go and spend four or five hours with my loved one. How am I going to explain that now I'm back, but I'm only there for 30 minutes? So do you think there will be room once, and again, it's all new territory, but once we kind of get the protocols in place, will there be room to revisit this? I think there, that the family members are um, an extremely important part of um, the, the care uh, provision for for seniors, and they have been sort of left out of the equation because of the risks around uh, the the coronavirus. I think at some point um, we hopefully will get to a place where it's more secure and more normal to be able to stay a little bit longer. Right now, um, the the way that Dr. Henry has mapped this out is that we'd like to try and keep the visits um, to an isolated area. Um, everywhere from being outdoors to uh, an inside space that would be uh, properly maintained and cleaned. And in the case where somebody is not very mobile, 
then the exception might be given to being able to move uh, to have a, a room visit. But I think, um, remember, we're talking about making sure that um, everybody sort of abides by the, the guidelines that are being put forward by the care, the care providers themselves. And uh, we're also going to be, you know, kind of needing staff to monitor it and, and sort of take, uh, make sure that the scheduling happens um, properly. And so there's, there's just a lot of moving parts. And I, and, I, and I would sort of ask for the public's patience a little bit as they, um, I know, are very anxious to try and uh, get together with their loved ones. All right, uh, Mike, we will leave it there. Thanks again so much for coming back on the show. You bet. Thanks, Jill. Continuing the conversation now and following up on the announcement on Tuesday of visitation coming back to long-term care facilities. We were chatting with Mike Klassen. He talked about all the things that need to be in place before that can happen. So let's bring in Jennifer Whiteside, Secretary Business Manager with the Hospital Employees Union. Jennifer, thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. Happy to be here. Uh, What are you hearing from members of the HEU who will be on the front lines, who are on the front lines and will be a very pivotal part of this return to visitation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think there's there's no question, Jill, that there's uh, there's a fair amount of uh, trepidation and some anxiety about what it's going to look like to open up long-term care again after uh, having weathered, uh, you know, a pretty devastating storm for the last for the last four months. Um, but really, I mean, nobody sort of understands more more clearly than our members exactly what's at, at, at stake here. I mean, they they absolutely see the um, see the need for uh, for uh, those who are living in in our long term care care homes and, and in assisted living to have um, direct contact with their families and loved ones again. Um, but but we also know that we have to be very very careful uh, with regard to how we go about making the environment safe. Uh, when we've talked about the announcement as well and the money that is going to be put uh, put forward to hire more people to make sure there are people that uh, are watching this and are being able to administer uh, the new protocols, as far as you know, will those any of that that money go to be hiring HEU members? Well, I think you know we haven't had those conversations yet. Uh, I mean, certainly in the acute care sector, the kinds of positions that we now also see in acute care that uh, that are sort of responsible for the screening role tend to be in uh, in, in our membership. Uh, I, I would expect that that to be fairly similar in the um, in the in the long term care sector. I mean, we're talking about folks who I imagine would be responsible for for screening, for greeting visitors, for applying the you know administering the questionnaire. Uh, directing um, and guiding uh, visitors to the to the designated visitor spaces. So, I mean, t- typically in in other parts of the healthcare system, certainly those are th- those are our members. Uh, it must be like you said too. A lot of the workers with the HEU are on the front lines, and they've seen the emotional mm-hmm. toll. And 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 it's been very devastating for so many people in long term care who depend on loved ones and family members coming to see them. Um, so, not only are are people working the front lines dealing with that, is there a concern now that one once we start going back to visitation, and it's going to look so different in that in a separate room or a 30-minute window, are HEU members now going to have to police that and make sure everybody's following these new rules? Well, I mean, I think that, that this is sort of one of the concerns and something we're going to have to all be working very closely together to, you know, to make sure that this uh, that these new protocols are administered in a way that you know meet, meets all of the the requirements that have been set out by the provincial health officer, uh, and that also meet the needs of of, of the, um, the the people who are receiving the visitor the, the visitors and and the staff as well. I mean, there is just no question that that families uh, visiting their loved ones in in care, in nursing homes 
fill uh, significant care gaps, um, you know, because we, we know that we, we had a pre-existing staffing crisis heading into COVID. You know, we, you know that, that's not going to resolve uh, itself uh, in, in the short term. So we, we are going to have to be very careful to ensure that, um, that, that the staff who are on the front line, the care aides, that, that they can do, that they can sort of focus on the job that they need to do and don't wind up in a situation having to take on those additional duties of um, having to, you know, kind of monitor or, or, or manage the, um, the, the, this program. I mean, it, it is why, you know, there's, it, it's important for, for government to have made the investment in ensuring that, that this pro- program can work because I, I think that's what we all really understand, all of us in the system, that the stakes are very high here and we, we are all going to have to work very uh, very closely together to make sure that, that this is a success because the, the consequences, if we are not maintaining a safe environment, um, are, are very devastating. And do you think enough has been done or the, the protocols that we we've understand that will be in place that was announced on Tuesday, does it go far enough to protect both the workers, the residents and the family members who will eventually be back visiting? Well, you know, I mean, I trust that we'll be going sort of uh, taking a very slow and methodical approach to implementing the measures that we'll that we'll need to see in uh, in uh, in care homes. Uh, I, I do want to say that you know, when it comes to issues such as uh, personal protective equipment for for workers, you know, we've seen a uh, you know we've seen lots of difficulties in our healthcare system and with other healthcare systems globally, ensuring that we have. Uh, the appropriate supply that we have enough of it, and that and that all <clears throat> parts of our healthcare system are using standard PPE, and that will be very very important to make sure that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that all of the uh, the equipment that's being used meets the provincial standard, um, and is uh, as and is available and applied correctly. And do you have concerns that uh, that it won't? Because I mean, that is a whole different different reality now uh, for anybody that that's gone into long term care or has visited people. I mean, we're not used to pre COVID. We're not used to seeing everybody in masks and wearing that's this right. equipment. Yeah. So, so do you? Are yeah, you- and it's it's a bit dislo. It's, it's, it can be a bit dislocating for um, for folks. And there have been some very creative ways around you know making sure that staff you know can, you know staff identify themselves that they're wearing maybe buttons with photos of of what their face is like when it's not masked on their your, their uniforms and such uh, and those are very important measures but uh, you know I would say that we we continue to have a somewhat uneven sort of application of provincial rules around um, access to PPE across all parts of the healthcare sector and we need to continue to be very rigorous in our attention to that and in our work on that front so that everybody uh, feels absolutely safe because I think visitors coming into long-term care they need to know they need to feel confident that the environment is safe the people receiving visits need to know it's safe and our and our members need to know uh, that it's safe and if there's one aspect of the, the policy that we're still sort of reaching out to you know to, to clarify is what what does masking what what kind what does masking look like for um, for visitors who are going to be coming in um, because I think that those you know will, will need to be we'll need to make sure that people are wearing appropriate um, masks and that they know what what are what is an appropriate kind of mask to be wearing. So it sounds like it, it won't visit. be something, sorry, as, as kind of free-ish of the BC Ferries, whereas if you have a scarf that you can throw on, that's good enough. It sounds like it will be a stricter rule for long-term care. And it certainly should be. Yeah, it, it absolutely has to be.
Yeah, and that's you know again an important role for somebody who is designated at the at the site to be to be monitoring that, to be working with the visitors to make sure that they've that they have the equipment that they need to make the visit safe. All right, Jennifer, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time yeah. today. Thank you so much. Have a good afternoon. Bye bye. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, not a huge surprise that motor coach companies in this province have been very hard hit because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Even with parts of the province reopening, that portion of the industry still reeling because of being mainly shut down. Well, let's bring in Dave Earl. Dave is the president of the BC Trucking Association to talk a little bit more about this. So good to have you back on the show. Thanks for being here. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, When we talk about the motor coach uh, industry, I would imagine people who aren't in it or familiar with it wouldn't have an idea maybe how big it is. How big of an industry are we talking about in B.C.? Oh, the industry in BC employs many, many hundreds of, uh, of individuals, uh, several dozen uh, companies providing service all around the province on everything, uh, you know, from the, uh, the smaller shuttle buses that you see uh, all the way up to the big uh, 56 passenger motor coaches, intercity buses, uh, charter events. Uh, it's a really significant part of the, uh, of the transportation sector in BC. And I would imagine even as things are reopening right now, it has been almost completely shut down. Uh, Jill, it's been catastrophic. Um, There's no other way to put it. Uh, We've been in touch with our members uh, right across the board since this crisis began. Uh, While it's not good uh, in any sector, any part of the industry, um, you know, it's really bad in some uh, motor coach uh, when uh, we hear from our members that they are down on average uh, 96% of their revenue is gone. Um, you know, I spoke with one uh, last week. His entire book of revenue for the month of June was one three-and-a-half-hour charter. That's it. Um, the, the impact has just been absolutely devastating. Uh, so what are you asking for at this point? How could government or, or how could, what help is needed? Yeah, it's a really tough, uh, a tough place to be, uh, being mindful that uh, as, as much as this, this sector has been absolutely devastated, there are many sectors that have been absolutely devastated. So uh, we've approached government with, uh, with a suite of ideas, uh, really to take a look at moving tax deferrals into tax cancellations, uh, different approaches to taxation and insurance. Uh, and then really uh, working to bridge the federal loan program that provides a degree of, uh, of uh, interest-free and sometimes forgivable loans into a, a bigger uh, program for industries and sectors such as motor coach who have just been so devastated and really need a financial lifeline uh, just to stay dark, um, just to stay in existence. So when we do see the lights come back on, there's actually somebody there to provide service. And um, do you anticipate the, the the industry rebounding or at what point as we do see things reopening and we continue into phase three in the province? Is there even a timeline on when you think the industry will at least partially return? Yeah, we, we asked our members that um, and say, you know, what do you see based on, on what you're seeing? And uh, the, the hard news is on it um, when we talk about returning to, uh, you know, pre-pandemic levels, the, uh, the general trucking industry is saying you know, we're into the better part of a year at least. Uh, motor coach, we're pushing two years. Um, it's just recognition that an awful lot of the tour operators rely on international tourism. And uh, without that coming back in significant numbers, and of course, even when we do start uh, going down that road in uh, the many months to come, um, it's not all going to come back at once. 
Um, so really, this is a this is a long term proposition. It's not a matter of saying, you know, can you help us out for the next sixty days. Um, this is saying, can you help us out until we're into a new place in 2021 and we can evaluate and see where we're at? Because you're right, if we're not going to see the international tourists that are a big bulk of people that would, would use motor coaches, even if BC residents try and fill some of that void, I would imagine unless, it's, unless motor coaches are going kind of the same way as airlines, it would still be a much different business model. It is a much different business model. Um, you know, some of our members are, are trying to restart in, in keeping with some of the uh, the activities for, uh, you know, provincial tourism. But uh, the aggregate numbers there we were hearing is they're anticipating that industry to be around, uh, you know, a 70 to 75 percent loss uh, of revenue this year. Uh, so even if motor coaches and some of their operations are able to get those corners of their business up, up and operating, um, it's going to be just a tiny fraction uh, of the revenue that they would derive. And because these pieces of equipment are so expensive to own and operate, the capital costs are so high. I mean, those big motor coaches are two-thirds of a million dollars a piece, at least. Um, you know, it becomes a matter of how do these companies uh, remain solvent and be able to pay those bills. And at this point, so with the federal programs and the provincial ones too, I would imagine. So the, the relief that's been offered to this point, I would guess, hasn't been enough. To then, that's why this particular sector is asking for more. Yeah, and I mean, it's a matter of, of looking at how do we bridge to the point that revenue comes back. Um, when we look at the the programs that are in place, they've been welcome and they've been very, you know, very very appreciated by industry. Um, you know, the extraordinary steps that government has taken on behalf of citizens. Uh, to weather the storm, but the the cold truth is is that wage subsidies um, subsidize wages, but you have to have revenue coming in the front door uh, to be able to fuel your vehicle, insure it, uh, and keep it on the road. And when we've seen this just massive cuts and and failure um, across the board, uh, we're rapidly coming to the point where companies are going to have to uh, make some very difficult decisions. Do you think there will be companies that don't come back? There's already been companies that have gone out of business because of this, and we're very concerned that there'll be a lot more. All right. Well, Dave, we'll leave it there and uh, follow up and see what happens next. But thanks so much for taking the time today. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a story that is just horrible. There really are no other words for it. And it comes out of Kamloops. You likely heard this in the news. It happened just before noon on Monday. RCMP officers were called to a home in Kamloops. There were reports of a dog attack. RCMP say when officers arrived, they found a man in the residence who was injured. He died a short time later. So there is an ongoing investigation into this case. We know that a pit bull was secured on the deck of the home and conservation officers were also called. They tranquilized the dog. The dog has since been euthanized. So this case is now leading to a lot of questions about exactly what happened and dogs being in these situations. There has also been a question of dog breeds and banning of specific breeds. And we are going to take a look at that. Joining me on the line is Victoria Schroff, an animal law lawyer with Schroff and Associates. So great to have you back on the show. Uh, Unfortunately, it is about uh, such a sad and horrible story as this one. Yes, Jill, it is. It's very tragic that a man lost his life and um, you know, my heart goes out to the family of the victim. And um, I, I'd like to state, though, that it's very unusual for um, dogs to cause fatalities. This this was a rare event. Very sad, but also rare. 
And and still under investigation, so we'll wait and see more details of exactly what happened on Monday. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the scenario. So this was a scenario where a man was visiting the, the house. This The dog itself belonged to a tenant. Uh, there's, there's some confusion on whether or not... We know that police have been called to the house in the past. We're not exactly sure what it's uh, for, what that has been for. Uh, but let's talk about the dog itself. Whenever we hear the words pit bull, people draw conclusions. Uh, people will say they're not surprised that that's the type of dog we're talking about in this scenario. Again, there will be suggestions about banning breeds. What is your response to that? Well, I think that it's a knee-jerk reaction because we can look at the data. We've got hard data on what's called BSL, breed-specific legislation. And so I say, and very many dog experts across the board, including the American Veterinary Medical Association, the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association, Humane Societies, dog breeders, they all say, Jill, that breed-specific legislation is not the answer to dog bites or public safety, and I concur. In this scenario, from what we understand, that uh, because there was also the question of would this be something that would be investigated as a criminal act, and from what I'm taking from this or from what I've read about this is that the dog would have had to have been deemed a dangerous dog in the past, or there would have had to be some type, there would have had to be that finding, and then perhaps what the, the issue would have been that the dog wasn't muzzled or the dog wasn't being kept in a way that it had to be because it had been deemed a dangerous dog. Right. That, that, that's a fairly typical um, scenario. Now, each municipality will have its own jurisdictional um, differences on how um, dangerous, so-called dangerous dogs are to be kept. But you're quite right when you say muzzles. It could also be if they're at home, they have to be behind closed doors if people are visiting. Um, sometimes those will have been court-ordered in positions that have been put in place to, to, um, to manage the dog. Other times it will be a certain amount of animal training. And um, so it, it differs from dog to dog. And it also differs from whether the dog is at home or the dog is out in a park. So and why, why does that differ as far as it differs the rules as to what you have to do if you're, say, in a public place or on private property? Right. Yeah, typically it does. Typically it would vary. Um, while they're at home, they can. their dogs are usually not on leash, for example, and they're usually not muzzled. So it depends, um, but generally not. Um, as you know, you, you generally wouldn't muzzle a dog inside the house. But if somebody was coming to visit, there might be an order in place or there might be a suggestion from animal control in the region that says, you know, your dog's already done something in the past. You need to step up and do the right thing and you need to muzzle. You need to, you know, take care the, the, whole, the whole key here is what we're doing in all of these cases is we're trying to balance public safety with um, the rights and responsibilities of dog owners. So how do we do that? You know, if we know we have a dangerous dog, um, either privately or, you know, at, you know, like if you're having a party, you, you better take some steps to be careful. And if you're taking your dog out with you when you go shopping and just thinking you can leave the dog you know, just to wait for you outside of a shop without being tied up and without being muzzled, that's just irresponsible. Mm-hmm. 
What about a, a scenario like this? And again, we don't know all of the details, but we do know that the the person who was allegedly attacked by the dog was in the room with the dog. There were other people there not in the room. If this is a dog that has had no prior attacks, that has that has not shown aggression, that, that it seems to have come out of nowhere, is the owner, though, still required to have something in place or, or, or should the owner, I mean... Do you never let your dog be alone with another person in a room for fear that something could happen? Um, well, I, you know, the thing is, is if you had no notion that your dog had ever been volatile, then how would you know? You know, I mean, I don't think it's reasonable that everybody, that would mean everybody from whatever breed you have, from Chihuahuas to Cane Corsos, you would have to have them with muzzles every single time you, you saw another person or it, it just doesn't make sense. Not everybody is going to, first of all, do those things. Most people don't even um, get licenses for their dogs, let alone um, take the precautions they need to. So if it's a first time offense, as it were, and the person didn't know, well, that's a very different scenario from the person who has a list of 10 prior incidents. And, and it depends on the severity of those incidents, too. They can be really minor, or they can be severe. It, you know, it, it so much depends on the facts. Mm-hmm. Do you think it was the right decision then to euthanize the dog? Well, you, you know, from having me on the show in the past and me being an animal law lawyer for 20 years, my goal is to save animals' lives. And they are sentient beings. They're part of the family. And I'd say it has to be in the rarest of rare circumstances where a dog needs to be euthanized. My understanding, because I was interviewed by CBC earlier, and um, they showed me a transcript of one of the conversations was that um, the person who owned the dog signed off and agreed that the this is my understanding was that that because of the agreement, the dog was euthanized by the owner. So we didn't see a dangerous dog uh, hearing type uh, thing sorting itself out. It wasn't going, you know, the typical hearing that would happen if somebody says, no, my dog isn't dangerous um, and my dog should be released back to me. So the test is, you know, whether or not this dog would pose an unreasonable risk to the public, whether it might kill or injure in the future. And I have no idea because I don't know the priors. I don't know the dog's temperament or socialization or anything about the owner. But my understanding is that they said that they, a joint decision was made between the um, peace officers and the, um, the owner to euthanize. Right. And I know that you've worked hard to exactly that, that it's the, the kind of the last scenario would be euthanizing the dog and that you've talked about the success rate, even when dogs have attacked in rehabilitating them and stopping future attacks. But if it comes out or if it is proven that, yes, it was the dog attack that killed this man, doesn't that make a pretty strong case that that dog is not to be trusted in the future? It does. It does. It definitely makes a very strong case uh, for that. And I mean, I don't, I think it's, you know, I think we need to keep the public safe. I mean, I'm very mindful of that as an animal lawyer, as somebody who defends dogs. But at the same time, there has to be a proper process um, as to how, um, you know, these scenarios should unfold. I think before a life is taken, I take every every life is very sacred. And I think that um, that's that's really important. Um, You know, before we start saying we're just we're going to kill, we have to we have to understand um, that, you know, maybe there's 
there was a medical reason for this to happen. Maybe this dog was off its medication and it had it had some sort of a brain flare up. There can be medical reasons that can be fixed. There can be behavioral situations that can be fixed. I'm not saying about this particular scenario because it's under investigation. I don't know. Um, but I'm just saying in, in a lot of scenarios, um, much, much dog behavior can be fixed. All right. We will leave it there. Victoria Schroff, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Jill.